uh, a time in the Word. We're in Revelation chapter 1. Again, we're going to pick up in verse 9. We're actually going to make some progress this week. We did two weeks in the first eight verses and really set a stage. And I think, I think if we've, we've done all right so far uh, in this, it's not gotten too crazy yet. It's been pretty straightforward, right? Like the first point, the main point of the first sermon. This letter is a revelation from our triune God to his covenant people about his work to consummate his kingdom. Uh, promises for his glory and our good. Pretty straightforward. Like, we've not, not really gotten crazy yet. Um, the second one, last week's point, was the letter of Revelation may create confusion and fear in many because we know it's about to get crazy, right? Like, there's going to be some things that we're going to deal with. But for a lot of people, it creates confusion and fear. But what's provided is a promise of blessing to God's people who hear and heed that message. And so what we saw was that God's purpose was demonstrating his glory, revealing and unveiling his glorious work and his glorious nature through the letter of Revelation. And then we looked last week, we, we took a closer look at what it means that he's given it to us for our good, that we would be a people who are, who are more known for our happiness because we understand what God's doing than for the hardship that we endure. Um, and, and then we're going to just keep pushing through, and I think we'll see that play out uh, over and over as we do. This week, we're picking up in verse 9. We're going to look back to Revelation. We're going to actually move to and see the first vision. So things are going to get a little bit crazy here in the beginning, right? Like we're pretty quick. We're turning turn to the vision and what John is going to see, what he's going to hear, what, what he's listening to, what he's looking at, and then what he's call, called to tell, show and tell to others. So let's read the passage. We'll pray and then we will dig in. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother, and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like, were, were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet and as, as, as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. Well, Lord, You've made this known to John to make it known to your people so that we would be blessed in the hearing of it, in the reading of it, in the keeping of it. So I, I would ask, Father, in this time, that by the, just, just the, through your spirit, our minds would be just enthralled with the reality that you have made the, your, your great and glorious nature known. That you, have, that you have met us, condescending to make yourself known to us in, in a language and in a way that though it is sometimes difficult for us to comprehend, there still is clarity. So I, I help us, I, I pray today that as I preach that your, your spirit would guide and do the work that I can't do to move the words that I say beyond the eardrums of the people listening, that, that, that it would shape our minds and our hearts to live and keep the words that you've called us to. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So imagine you're living your Christian life. You're, just, you're going about it. You're doing the things that you've been called to do. You're seeing God work in pretty powerful ways, serving him, making him known to others. You're, 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 you're taking opportunities to, to demonstrate his glories to those 
around you, doing the things that he's commanded you to do, making disciples, loving others, serving others to the glory of his name, leading others, being faithful in your walk with him and toward the saints. Just imagine that's where you're at. I hope it's not a hard thing for you to imagine because I hope you're striving after those things. But then as a result of that, someone comes to you and says, shut up. Quit saying those things. We don't want to hear his name. We don't want you talking about that man anymore. And if you don't, there's a price to pay. This is kind of what's happened to John. You think about what's happened to John. Now, Tertullian tells us that, that they were so fed up with John that before they sent him to Patmos, and, and, and this is tradition, I don't know that it really truly happened, but Tertullian gives the report that they, that they boiled him in oil. And, and, I mean, you know what boiling someone in oil is likely to do. They're going to die. But he comes out of the oil, doesn't even have a burn on him. And so since they couldn't, silence him by killing him, they just decide to dispose of him. And they send him to this island, Patmos, to, to exile him, to dispose of the problem. He, we, we need to be rid of him. And this wasn't a vacation. It wasn't like he was going to the, to the Mediterranean islands and, and going to spend some time in this glorious place. Like, don't picture Tahiti, you know, or, or uh, Fiji with these nice cabins over this crystal blue water. Don't, don't think that. This is a, a, an island that's sparse and likely wasn't populated. Sir William Ramsey, a British archaeologist, paints a pretty bleak picture of it. He writes that preceded by scourging, so scourging being beaten, marked by perpetual fetters being, being chained constantly, scanty clothing, insufficient food, sleep on a bare ground, a dark prison, work under the lash of a military overseer. This is the picture that the British archaeologist paints of John's existence on Patmos. All because he was doing the things that Christ had called him to do. All because he was living a faithful Christian life. All because he was being obedient to the commands, walking faithfully to the glory of God to the, for, for the good of others. What's amazing to me as I, I think about this passage is that though they put him out of sight and out of mind, those that exiled John to Patmos, like they, they are getting rid of him and out, out of sight, out of mind, we don't have to deal with him anymore. But he's not too far away for the Lord to reach. He, he's not too far from the presence of the Lord to, to, for, the, for the Lord to be with him and to show up in his life and call out to him and, and meet with him. In fact, it was the Lord's day, he tells us, and that, that's likely a reference to Sunday, the first first day of the week. So, so the Israelites observed the Sabbath, which was Saturday. They observed the Sabbath. They set aside ordinary work. Early on in, in, in the church history, they, the Sunday morning, the, the morning that Jesus resurrected became the day that they began to set aside, that they would gather on Sunday morning, uh, not as a Christian Sabbath, but as a, as, a, as a time to celebrate and to gather around the word of the Lord, to devote themselves, as Cameron read a minute ago, to devote themselves to the, to the apostles' teaching fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. So on Sunday morning, exiled on Patmos, Jesus shows up. Jesus makes himself evident to John. It's one of the great promises of Revelation. It's the point that, that I hope to drive home this morning, even as we work through some of the visionary pieces of this puzzle, that one of the great promises of Revelation is not that Christians avoid tribulation, but that our glorious Lord is with us in the midst of our patient endurance. It's, it's shocking to me that there's people who read this book and think that somehow Christians are going to get out of tribulation. Tell John that. Tell the people he's writing to that. Did, did you hear how he introduced the letter? <laughs> brother, and I, I, John, your brother and partner in the easy street. In, in, in the days of, of just living in the glory of Christ, in the, in the days that everything's smooth sailing? No. I'm your brother and partner. That, that's a derivative or a form of the word koinonia. It's a participant with, a partner in, someone who is fellowshipping in the tribulation. Come on, tell me you get excited about that. Right? We're not talking about misery loves company here. It's not the idea. 
But there's a recognition that living this life that we've been called to live comes with a measure of endurance. This isn't, this isn't just something that, that, that I'm just pulling out of thin air. It's not something that John's just deciding. It's not just something that is going to be revealed in the, Reve- in, in the book of Revelation. This, this is New Testament teaching. Paul taught it. As he's coming back, after he's gone through and planted churches in places like Derby and Lystra, he's coming back, it says in Acts 14, he's coming back through Acts 14, 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, those ones that he had just made on his way through. He's now coming back through, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Have I sold you on this yet? Like, come on, let's go. Let's follow Jesus. Want to be a part of this kingdom? Well, it's coming with many tribulations. Jesus himself said it. I mean, I I don't know how, how, how we don't pick up on this or how we might overlook it. But Jesus himself, Luke 29, 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The cross is a, it's like the electric chair, right? Like it's, a, it's an emblem of death. It's, it's an image of suffering. It, it, we have taken it, in, in, in the Christian culture we've shifted, and now we look at the cross and we see victory because it, Christ has won the victory for us on that. Absolutely, I, I want you to see that. I want you to see the victory in it, but, but don't miss the fact that, hey, to follow after Jesus means to take up a cross and follow after him. not always going to be easy now let's just be careful because in all the hardship there's a lot of blessing there's a lot of happiness there's a lot of joy for us as we look to him as we listen to him as we seek to show and tell others about him so because John knows this John knows and understands hey this is the life this is what I'm called to and 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 my best life is set before me the greatest hope I have is, is set ahead of me my 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 savior my glorious lord is with me right now in the midst of all of this because he knows this this exile and the commands to be silent would not hinder his commitment to make the glory of his lord known It wouldn't keep him from writing these things down and ensuring that those that he calls and says, I'm your brother, that those that he sees sharing in his tribulation, sharing in the kingdom with him, sharing in the, the, um, what's the word he uses, the patient endurance, that they would hear these things. But John, what if it means you're stuck on that island longer? John, what if it means it comes with greater hardship? What what if it means you get beaten for that? John, what if it means, and John's like, I don't care. And you know how I know he doesn't care? Because we're still able to read this letter to the Revelation. We have this letter to the Revelation because John wouldn't be silenced. Because endurance wasn't a thing that would keep him from doing what he'd been called to do. Because tribulation wasn't a thing that would keep him from doing what he was called to do. And what did he hear? What, what, what did John hear that was so compelling to him? I mean, we, we could point and, and, and look at the, the, the gospel record that he wrote. We, we could look at the words that Jesus taught him. We could, we could turn to his epistles and, and see and learn what God had shown him by the Spirit to write to the churches. But God showed up right here in this moment, right here on the island of Patmos. God shows up. Jesus speaks. He hears a voice like a trumpet. Now, I don't think he heard a voice just calling out like a trumpet. You know, I don't imagine, ah, I don't, that's not what he heard. Right? I I know it's silly, but I I, I did that to make a point and I just make myself look foolish. No, you're not going to get it again. So, so there's a, a whole group of people, and, and I'm, I'm all for taking the Bible literally. Don't misunderstand. Let's, let's understand the literal. Let's take it literally. It's literally true. Let's just start there. But we understand that he's using symbolism here, right? I mean, we, we get that, that he does not meaning that there's a guy that's making trumpet sounds. 
But there's a clear, compelling call. A, a, a distinct utterance, a distinct word that cannot be missed. And he hears it. Clear, blast, unmistakable, that commanded attention. And what else does he hear? He hears what that voice says. He hears it call out. He, he hears the words, the, the command. A command to write and to send. He, he, immediate, write what you see in a book. Send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And he did. What did he hear? He heard that voice like a trumpet. He, he heard that command and he obeyed. But he doesn't know who's talking. Well, what do you do when you hear a voice? When somebody behind you says something. You don't recognize the voice. You're not quite sure who it is. What do you do? You turn to look and that's exactly what he does. So he hears and he listens. He turns to see. And things get a little bit crazy. What, would you, what, what do you think he would expect to see? You hear a voice. You, you hear someone call out. Write it down. Send it to the seven churches. He turns around and he doesn't see, he doesn't see Patmos. He doesn't see this deserted island. What's he see? He sees some lampstands. Seven of them. And we could, we could probably deduce, we've already understood that he already recognizes and already, already pointing out that, the, that there's letters to the seven churches, he's named them. We could probably deduce without further help that, that those lampstands are probably representative of the seven churches that he's supposed to write to. I mean, there's, there's allusions to Old Testament, to the, to the tabernacle and the, and the lampstands that stood in it. But eventually, we're going to find out specifically, hey, that's exactly who they represent. Now, I, I love it because the things that God wants us to, wants to ensure that we understand and know, the symbols that he wants us to discern without, without a lot of trouble, he's going to make sure we understand them. He's going to make sure that they're clear. And so he sees these seven lampstands, and he, he, he's going to learn pretty quickly that they are the seven churches that he's supposed to write to. But it's not seven lampstands alone. I mean, if it's just an image of seven lampstands and this voice is just out there saying, and those, oh, by the way, that's the churches, this would be a different sermon. But what does he see? He sees these seven lampstands and among them, one like the Son of Man. He has this glorious vision of the Lord among his people, like a priest in the temple Tending to the, the, the lampstands, keeping the lights lit, taking care of them, amongst them, and with them. And all, all, all of these things that he calls out, all of them depict the glory of God and demonstrate the glory of our Savior. Now, I want to I point out two, little, two, two quick, quick cautions as we look at this. Again, we shouldn't take them literally in the sense that Jesus literally looks like this. In the sense that when you show up to heaven, you're going to see a, a, a man standing in front of you with fire in his eyes and a face that shines as bright as the sun and a tongue that's a sword. Several of the people that I have read from and studied from, I appreciate their, their take on this. They're, they're not saying that John is trying to tell us exactly what Jesus looks like. This vision, that he, I think he's literally seeing this, not to say this is just what Jesus looks like but so that we can begin to discern what Jesus is like. That these are representative of his character. That these are representative of his attributes, of his glory. And in fact, another caution that we might be careful to take is taking these out and trying to, and trying to isolate them by themselves. Uh, I can't remember where I heard this, but one of the, one of the people I've listened to or uh, studied over the last couple of years uh, spoke of it in the terms of like, Looking at a rainbow and deciding that you want to understand the beauty of the rainbow by taking out a color from the rainbow and just want to look at that one color. What does that do? Well, it removes the, the, the way in which that color sits next to the other color, which gives us the, 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 
the depth of color that, that's transitional between the two. And we, we lose something in that. And so, so the caution is, is it, it's not that we're not going to seek to understand these things. It's not that we're going to not pay attention to them. But we want to look at what, what's really on display here. What, what's really being demonstrated is, as he calls him out, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. His, his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Nearly all of these are allusions back to the book of Daniel. So Daniel, you can go back and look at Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, I believe, are the two chapters most represented there. Daniel is having this vision of the ancient of days. And in that vision, he has the ancient of days. And the ancient of days is, is, is on a throne, victorious and sovereign and ruling over all things. And, and he sees one like a son of man approach the throne. And Daniel, in his vision, sees them as distinct and separate people. But what's shocking here is that is now John relays them and says, this is what I saw as he paints this picture with words for us to, to recognize, he shows us that the ancient of days and the one like a son of man are actually the same. That Jesus is God. That he is divine. That he is glorious. It's a glorious picture, a glorious expression. The, the, the weightiness of it, the light of it. And, 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 and there are ways in which each of these are going to play out in the, in the letters to the seven churches. And we're going to look at what it might mean as we, as we walk through each of those churches. And as, as each one is applied to the specific circumstance of these seven churches. But let's not go so far right here in this moment and, and try to define too much without recognizing that what John wants us to see is a glorious picture of our God and Savior with and among his people. A people who are living in a world that doesn't receive them, that doesn't accept them, that bears with it a measure of weight, heaviness, tribulation, and trial, and demands of us patient endurance. But he is there. With them. And if it's not made clear immediately, if, if it's not made clear that Jesus is this divine being, that, the, that he is the ancient of days, immediately from, these, from, these, from the image, it will be made clear as soon as Jesus comes to him and begins to speak again. I'm the first and the last. That's a reference to Isaiah. Isaiah, God making claims, himself making claims. I am the first and the last. It's going to be repeated in, 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 uh, in Revelation. Again, God making claims. I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. That Jesus is divine. That he is the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Who else could that be other than Jesus? One like a son of man who is also God. This is Jesus. Keys to the death, to, uh, keys to, of, of death in Hades that he rules with authority over death. He, he's the one that he's conquered it. He's put it under his feet. It is no longer the problem it used to be. Here's John seeing these things and moved by the glory of these things. You know how we know he's moved? Because what we see John do. What's he do? He falls flat on his face. <clears throat> I, 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 don't, I, I was I, talking with the youth this morning in, in the youth class. and I, I mean, how many of us, how many of us when we approach the idea that we're approaching God, that we're, we're coming into his presence, think about the glory of this being that we are approaching and think, I need to fall on my face. That is the normal response. Like, right, through, through Scripture, it's, it's easy to imagine, oh, man, I'm going to tell God how it is. I need to, I need to deal with God. We're going to make a deal. I'm going to let him know what I think about that. 
You know who else did that? Job. You know what Job did when God actually showed up in the middle of the conversation he was having with his friends? He shut up. I don't want to say another word. But you know what's amazing about that whole, the whole thing? I mean, there's a lot of things amazing about it. But the, the, the letter, Job loses everything because God is even the one that brings him up. Job loses everything except for his wife who tells him to curse God and die. And it's like, could you take in her too? <laughs> Sorry. Shouldn't have said that. Just curse God and die. Be done with him. Right? Uh, takes everybody but his wife. Takes everything from him but his life. Gives him sores and is riddled with problems. And then he, he, he gets these friends that come along and say, Man, you must have made God mad. What did you do? And Job, he complained a lot. He, he talked about God's justice and, and, and wrestled with the idea of the justice of it all. But you know what's amazing in the end? After Job is repentant before the Lord, the Lord says to his friends, you better ask Job to make a sacrifice on your behalf. The, the, the book tells us that Job never once denounced, even in his complaints, he knew and was, was thinking of the Lord. The laments, the Psalms are full of laments of Israel, the nation of Israel, God's people, David, others, lamenting, how long, O Lord? How long is this going to last? How, what are we going to endure? What are we going to have to deal with? How long will the, will the evil prosper and the righteous suffer? How long? You know, and, and, and God gives that, gives that to us, gathers it among his people, gives it to us as a, as a book of songs that we can sing back to him, prayers that we can offer back to him. Because God doesn't have a problem with us lamenting toward him because we're lamenting toward him. You know, the problem he had with the, the Israelites was not their laments that were pointed toward him, but their grumbling about him. You know, if God would just do this, oh gosh, I need, I, I cannot eat another piece of manna. Where's the meat? Did you bring us out here just to die? I mean, come on, like, isn't, does, does God really, is he really here? Is he really doing what he's supposed to do? John. Man, what did he do? Oh, like every other person that ever sees heaven unveiled in front of them, he doesn't want to say another thing. In fact, it's ironic if you think about it. The people who exiled him, sent him to Patmos, tried to boil him in oil, if that's a true story, they couldn't silence him. But the glory of the Lord among his people with the churches I don't want to say another word. Who am I to even speak? He falls flat on his face. I love what happens next. It's not like Jesus looks at him and says, oh, I'm, I'm glad you did that. You just stay there. I got this. You, 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 you just keep your mouth shut. I'll take care of things. I appreciate you're afraid. I want you to continue to quake. He didn't say any of that. He didn't react in that way at all. He goes to him. He touches him with his hand on the shoulder, I think it says, right? Like, he, he, when I saw him, I fell flat as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, I, I guess I'm picturing it as his shoulder. His right hand, fear not. The hand that holds the stars, which we find out are the angels, right? The, the one that, that holds the, the messengers of the church. And, and there's all kinds of things about this, all kinds of discussion about this. These seven stars are the, are the spirits of the church, the personality, if you will, the, the spirit of our church and our gathered body before God that Jesus holds them in his hand. There's people that think it's the pastors of the church. And boy, I like that, the idea that that, that as pastors of the church, we're, we're stars and we're held in his right hand. And, and then there's those that just read this and think, oh, well, he said angels. And every other use of the word angels in this letter is angel, a, a heavenly being. Not divine, but a messenger sent from God. Uh, that, that, that likely, that's probably what it is, that this, that this messenger, that these seven, these seven churches have an angel, that our church and the churches across the town, the churches across the nation, the churches across the world, that we have this angel that God holds, that Jesus holds in his right hand, demonstrating authority and, and provision and protection, that he holds us and he's with us. 
And that right hand, he bends down and he touches John with. He says, fear not. My glory isn't here to consume you, to burden you, to bear weight on you. My glory is here to bless you. Look at who I am and listen to what I've done. And oh, by the way, having seen it, having heard it, I want you to show it and tell it to others. So what does John do? He listened, he looked, he showed, and he told. And he writes this letter. He's telling us mere mortals. He's just allowing us this this opportunity to see what he's seen, to discern and experience what he has seen. And it's not all straightforward. It's not all easy to understand in the sense of, oh, I'm going to walk up and I'm going to understand every verse. I'm going to... I'm going, to, I'm going to get it. And there's all kinds of discussion that happens around it. And I, I get that, that for many people that's a, a hard thing. But he's not hiding himself in it. He's not left us to try to, to decode these things. He's made clear what he wants to make clear. But, but just imagine what it is for, a, for an adult to describe the universe to a toddler. Tell, tell your preschooler, about who God is, his eternal nature, his divine essence, his divine being. Explain the Trinity to him or her. Right? God is coming down. And, and, and this is the beauty of what Revelation is. We, we said it last week. It's a God's eye view. It, it, it's a heavenly view given to a people who can only see just barely in front of the noses on their faces. Right? Like We, we have such a physical interpretation, such a physical reality that we live in, that we miss sight of the spiritual truth that's behind everything. And he comes, comes into this and he unveils and he uncovers and he reveals what there is a heaven behind this. There is a, a, a spiritual work that God is doing in everything. And, and he comes and he reveals this to a people who, whether we like to think about it or not in this way, are more like toddlers trying to understand the universe than adults who have it all figured out. But he's given it to us so we can see his glory, so we can experience the glorious reality that is truer than anything else we can see, taste, or touch. So he's going he's gonna to do this by, by, by painting word pictures, by, by using language, not, not, not trying to tell you exactly what something looks like. In fact, I, I really appreciate, I was listening to D.A. Carson uh, talk about Revelation uh, I don't remember when it was, but, but he made the point something to the effect of, you know, there, there's a reason why we don't try to paint pictures of what John is describing, why he used words rather than trying to draw these things out. Because if you draw a picture of a lion and a lamb, that just looks stupid, right? That, 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 it's just that plain. That there's people that try to draw these pictures, that they sketch these these pieces of art, and they try to say that this is what it's like, this is exactly what it's like, and that's not exactly what it's like. That these pictures are are, uh, metaphorical, that they're allegorical, that that they are representative of something greater and bigger. So what do we experience when we see or, or listen? What do we see in our mind's eye when we imagine these words? That among the golden lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were, like, were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in, in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars from, the mouth came, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face like the sun shining with its full strength. Man, I want, to, I want to close my eyes. I want to guard my face. I want to recognize that there's a strength and a power and, and a truth to judgment and a concern of standing too close. I think that's what it's going to be like in that moment when we first see Jesus. I don't think any of us are going to be bold and brash and stand up and Man, I wish you'd have done it this way. If you'd have just listened to me, we could have got this done about a thousand years earlier. 
I think we're going to see that glory and we're going to respond to that glory. We're likely going to fall flat on our face. I hope it's true. I hope you do. This is going to set out a pattern for us as we walk through this letter. The John listening and then looking. Hearing and then seeing. And then showing and telling us with the best ability that words, a divine word offered to God's people can offer over and over. Things like, a, uh, uh, things like in the throne room vision of chapter 4, he hears the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah, and he turns and he looks, and it's a lamb that's covered with blood. He hears of the 144,000, and he turns and he looks, and he sees a multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation that can't be numbered. He's going to hear, and he's going to see, and he's going to show, and he's going to tell. Because God's glory is greater than the glory of those that sent him to Patmos and sought to silence him either by death or exile. Because he's, 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 he's more afraid of God. He's got a greater fear of God than the men who sought to, to dispose of him. Because he's got a greater recognition of God's power for God's people than the people who are the cause of his tribulation. He will not be silenced. And we get the benefit of it. As a result of reading this passage, I, my, my hope is not to sit here and define for you, although we are going to deal with these in the weeks to come as we walk through the, the seven letters to the seven churches. We're going to take a week for each church. My hope for you today is not just to define all of these things for you, but just to sit you in this place where you are exposed to the glory of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I've had this question rattling around in my head, and I, I, I think it's really this passage is the heart of it. It's been... I've been reading Revelation, been studying, and I mean, everything right now in my life, two other books I'm reading uh, closely, um, but everything right now is Revelation, and, and oh man, I, I'm, I'm just going to tell you what, I hope, it, I hope you're doing this with me because this is amazing. But the, <laughs> it's, it's brought to mind a question, I, I really think it's rooted in this passage, and, and that question that's been rattling around, it, hmm, is my view of God, my understanding of God, my knowledge and understanding of His greatness and glory, is it really in line with how great and how glorious He really is? When, when was the last time I was silenced simply because I was captivated by the glory of God. When was the last time I felt like I couldn't even stand because I recognized the, the power and the presence of the glory of God? When, when, when is the last time that I was comforted by this power that can consume me, by this glory that could destroy me. I mean, I started off by saying that one of the great promises of, the, of Revelation is that Christians don't avoid tribulation, but that our glorious Lord is with us in the midst of our patient endurance. But if His glory isn't comforting to us, how is that a benefit? How is that a blessing and not a curse? John sees him in the midst of these lampstands. He sees him and he sees this glorious revelation, this glorious unveiling. He gets to, he gets to lay his eyes on it and gets the privilege of telling others about it. And exactly what he sees, he's trying to make known, right? But where does he see Jesus? In the midst of the lampstands. Isn't that what Jesus promised us? I am with you always to the end of the age. Not, hey, by the way, when you believe in me, everything's going to be okay. 
You're never going to have another trouble in your life. You are going to be healthy, wealthy, and he, he doesn't promise that we're getting out of this world without tribulation. In fact, he says, expect trouble in this world. <laughs> because they hated me, you can expect that they'd hate you. But when has his glory compelled me, compelled us to do the things that we've been called to do? So I just want you to think on these questions. Because I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that too often we have a view of God's glory that's and, and, and I get this. I, let me just say this. Let me, before I say what I'm about to say, let me just seek to provide a boundary and a, 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 some space here. Not to let us off the hook, but to just really give, give us some space. I recognize that there is no way that any one of us are going to have a full comprehension and full understanding of the glory and the greatness of God. He is eternal and we are finite. I understand that we're never going to be able to fully do him justice in our hearts and in our minds and in, our, in, in, in the ways that we speak of him. We are limited beings speaking of something eternal. But I am afraid we have oft, too often diminished the view of the glory of God because we see him more as a friend than our Lord. This is buddy that we hang out with. This is guy you know, he gets me. Yeah, he does. But he also has eyes like flaming fire and a face that shines like the sun and a sword, a double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. Man, he is a glorious Lord. He is the ancient of days. I'm afraid that too, too often we have a view of God that, that, that diminishes the glory and greatness of God because we, we think we can barter with him. You know, Lord, if, if you'll just do this for me, I'll, I'll do this. Or if you'll just do this, I won't do this. We think we can make these deals with him and we, we think even sometimes we tell him what he should be doing. But does what we have heard from God's word about him prompt us to listen to him above every other voice? The voices that say, be silent. The voices that say, ah, it's not worth it, don't go that way. The voices that say, if God was really God, he would do this. If God was really sovereign, this is how he'd act. If God was really loving, this is what he'd do. Do we have a, a, has what we've heard from God's word, from what we've listened to about who God is, does it prompt us to listen to him above every other voice, the, the voice of the enemy, the, the influence of the world, even the desires of our own flesh? Will we listen to him above every other voice, whatever the cost? Does what we've heard and seen of God cause us to want to look to him and never look away? Does what we've seen and heard about him cause us, like that, that voice that's like a trumpet that, that draws John's attention and he's like, well, I want to see who's talking, who's telling me to do this. The one that calls us to himself, that, that John tells us that we can't come unless God calls us. Do, do we hear that voice and do we see that God and do we never want to look away because he is so glorious? That we never looked to any other thing for our satisfaction? That we never look to any other thing of, uh, for, for, for our blessing and benefit? Is our understanding of the greatness and glory of God enough to sustain us in patient endurance? See, unfortunately, I think some of us are more fair-weather fans than we are people who will walk with him, picking up that cross and following him. Is our understanding of the greatness and the glory of God enough to satisfy the desires of our hearts? Is it not possible that some of us want the things that God brings more than God himself? Man, I want you to have all the blessing he has to offer. I want you to know all the glory of, of being his. I want, you to, I want you to understand fully 
all the gifts that he has to bestow upon us. I want you to experience the fullness of the lavish of his grace. But do we not understand that the inheritance that we receive is him? We get the God of heaven. We get the one who said, let there be light. Who crafted us from dirt. Who breathed life into us. Who knit us together in our mother's womb. We get the God who should condemn us and crush us and send us away. We get the God who sent his only begotten son to die in our place and for our sin. We get him. And it's only in him that we get everything else. But is it not possible that some of us are more concerned with the things we get than the fact that we get him? He is with us. Is our understanding of the greatness and the glory of God enough to hold our attention even after the storm has passed? I mean, some of us, we run to God when things are hard, right? I need God now. But once we get things back under control, once we got our feet back on the ground and we're like, okay, I can handle this. Can you? I was at the men's retreat this weekend and, and uh, a guy was sitting next to us at one of the breakout sessions as we're talking around the tables and he's got these tattoos on his arm and I don't know how I feel about tattoos. It's not really the point, but he's got these tattoos on his arm. I think it was actually this arm. And and one of them was a lighthouse and one of them was a ship. And and, and he began to describe why he got them. And the ship was in a storm. It was raining. He's like, this is a reminder to me. And it has an anchor off off into the sea. And then it has a storm cloud. And behind the storm cloud is the sun. He said, this is a reminder that in every storm, I have an anchor that holds. In every storm... The light of God's truth and glory. He didn't use those words, but there's hope. He's there. He's, on, he, he's in the midst of every storm. He's waiting for me on the other side of the storm. He's holding me in the storm. And then he flips it over and he shows the other tattoo and it's a lighthouse in broad daylight shining brightly. He's like, you know, I always get the question, why in the world is a lighthouse shining bright in the day? He said, and I always tell people, It's because even when things are good, I need the light of Christ in my life. And I was like, man, I'm going to use that tomorrow. I said, I already had this stuff, and it just fits. It's so beautiful. Right? I mean, we're Fairweather fans, or we're we're thinking we can get along without him, but the reality is we always need him. Does what we've heard from God's word about him prompt us to listen to him above every other voice? Does what we've heard and seen of God cause us to want to look on him and never look away, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the desire of our flesh, regardless of the situation that we're living in? And then finally, does what we believe about God compel us to show and tell of his greatness and glory so others will hear and see him? One of the most popular reasons that Christians give for not sharing about their faith or telling others about what's going on is fear. It may be a fear of a different kind. And maybe, maybe fear is not your first reason. Maybe, maybe it's not the thing you struggle with. But, but fear. fear. Fear is a major one. Fear of telling others because I don't want to be rejected. Fear of being rejected. Fear of losing something like a job. Fear of not knowing the right answers. It's fear of well, you name it. It's all kind of fears. Just afraid. Behind that fear, I think, I'm concerned. It's a misunderstanding of the greatness and the glory of God. A diminishing of just how glorious He really is. Able to work through you and in you. Not because you're capable. Not because you're powerful. Not because you're great and glorious. But because He is. I mean, imagine being John trying to write down what you just saw. Seven golden lampstands. One like a son of man. And I think literally in the vision, not that Jesus literally looks like this, but I think literally in the vision, he sees these features that ascribe the characteristics of Christ. All I got is a few words. How am I going to make people understand this? I can't can't be convincing enough. What am I going to do? Imagine if he never wrote the book of Revelation. Simply because he was afraid he couldn't describe it well enough. How about your brothers and sisters sitting in this room? 
your Christian friends across the, uh, across the city, across the globe, the people that you know that, that you would say to them, hi, I'm your brother, a partner in the tribulation, in the kingdom of Christ, a, a partner in patient endurance. Can we just celebrate together the glory of God? Who, who wouldn't want to hear that from a, a brother? A family member, someone they know loves them and cares for them. I'm thankful that John didn't let his fear or even his potential misunderstandings of the glory of God keep him from writing a book that comes with the promise of blessing. Just a a practical example. I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I, I please don't ever take anything I say that way. In fact, I'm, I'm probably quicker to tell self de- self-deprecating jokes. But as we enter into this, I have been blessed and encouraged by God's people to hear how he's using these sermons in your life. Let me ask you a question. As you've listened and as you've looked, who have you shown And who have you told? Sermons are online. You don't even have to be the one to do all the teaching. You don't even have to be doing all the talking. The scripture is available everywhere. I can read it in print. Pick up my phone. I read it on my iPad. His word is there. Why haven't you? If you haven't. Is it possible that we have misunderstood the greatness and the glory of God and the comfort it can be to his people and the call it gives to those who aren't his yet so that they might join us in worship? One of the great promises of Revelation is not that the Christian avoids tribulation. I know, I know what I'm asking you, what I'm even presenting to you might come at a cost. That's why we're afraid. It's not that we're going to avoid this, but in the midst of it, our glorious Lord is with us in the midst of our patient endurance. Let's pray.